So that is Philemon chapter 1. It's the only chapter. And then we'll be reading from verse 1 all the way through to verse 25. And the reading of the word of our Lord is as, is as, is as follows. Philemon chapter 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Agrippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from our God, from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayer, in my prayers, because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that your, that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from you, for I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son, Onimaeus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful to both you and me. I am sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment, uh, in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so that your good deeds might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me as a partner, welcome him as you welcome me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your very self. Yes, brother, may I benefit you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Meanwhile, also, prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers, I will be restored to you. Uh, Epaphras, my fellow soldier, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, uh, Articus, Demas, and Luke, my co-worker. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let us bow our heads and let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, for the privilege that we have to open up your word. We thank you that as we open up your word and your word goes forth today, thank you in advance for receptive hearts to your word. 
I thank you, Lord, that we can be teachable in submission to your word today, Father. And I thank you that you will build us up in your word. In areas that we are weak and that we fall short, may you, by the power of your spirit, Lord, build us up and, and groom us more and more into your image. I thank you for each and every person that is represented here today. And I thank you that your word will fall upon fertile soil. Let us not be hearers of your word and so, do, and so deceive ourselves, but let us be doers of your word. Let your light of your word so shine before us, Lord, that it will guide our pathway in how we ought to live each and every day. We declare, Lord, to you be the glory both now and forevermore. In the name of our Lord and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. amen. You may take your seats. So as I mentioned, we're going to be doing a, a, a new series. Uh, for the next three to four weeks, we're going to be looking at the topic on forgiveness. Um, I want us to understand when it comes to the topic of forgiveness, that there's a context in which we have to understand it. And there's a context in which we have to, we have to know what exactly what the Bible is telling us to do and exactly what the Bible is telling us not to do. Um, you'll hear there's those examples that people will say, uh, there's certain people in my life that I wouldn't be able to forgive. But I want you in your heart right now to make mention of those people. Who is it that you have dearly in your heart that it's so difficult for you to be able to forgive? And I want you to challenge yourself over the next couple of weeks as we go through the word of God to ask yourself, what is God communicating to you through his word? So what is God saying through his word in the way in which he wants you to go and the way in which he wants you not to go? Uh, we're going to look at parables. Uh, we're going to look at this teaching of Paul. So I want us to understand that, that the act of forgiveness is seen in the conduct of what you do. It's not just something, ah, you know, I forgive them in my heart. No. Blasphemy. You know, foolishness. You don't forgive them in your heart and you know everything's okay. It has to seen, be seen in your conduct of reconciliation. Now remember this, and I want to take our attention to our Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our... Carry on. As we... I like that as we part. Forgive us our trespasses. So the manner in which we can see that we are forgiven is displayed in the, which, in the manner in which we, are for, we forgive. So you can see if you are forgiven by how you forgive. Now I'm not saying that, that there is, there is, there is um, excuses and pardons that is made for wrongful conduct. Um, if you look in the, the, the church of Corinth, there is a time of excommunication uh, with the pastors that had fallen to misconduct. Uh, the church had to remove them publicly. So those ministers, as they were ordained publicly, had to step down and be removed publicly. But that is not a wrong act that is done from a person to a person where forgiveness is required. So I want us to look at Paul's understanding on uh, forgiveness in conduct. And we see through this letter that he writes to Philemon. So we need to understand while we read this letter, number one, uh, who Philemon is, who's this person he needs to receive in forgiveness, who Paul the Apostle is, and the context of what we find here, and then look at various formats of application as to what the Word of God looks like in and through our lives right now. In Philemon chapter 1, Paul gives his, 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 his formal introduction. But in this introduction, Paul doesn't use a phrase that he normally uses. 
Paul drops his title. And there's a reason why Paul drops his title. Well, let's look at it. Philemon chapter 1 verse 1. Well, I should just say verse 1 because it's not like you can go to chapter 2 now, can you? Anyway. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. So normally when Paul writes his introduction, Paul normally says, I, Paul, an apostle. But when Paul is writing to, and we need to keep in mind, Paul here is not writing to a church. Paul is writing to a brother in the faith. So Paul doesn't need that tighty tighty titles now when he's speaking to a brother. He's appealing to somebody on the basis of their relationship. So Paul is not coming to the person in order to acknowledge or they should have an acknowledgement of who he is. Although, as much as he's appealing to a brother, this brother he's appealing to is a senior of a church that meets in his home. So they have uh, this startup budding churches and this startup budding churches is a church where they meet in his very own home. Uh, him and his wife was overseeing this congregation. But Paul wanted to appeal to his brother's heart to such an extent that this letter would also be used in the church. So remember this, it's not written to the church, even though the motive and the intent of the letter should be used in the church. He's writing to his brother in the faith. But Paul in his introduction, uh, this is one of Paul's letters that Paul writes when he's in prison. So Paul in his introduction here gives us an insight to where he is. Now remember, while Paul's first uh, imprisonment, he writes four letters, Philemon, uh, Colossians, who knows what else? Philippians, eh? Ephesians. So Paul writes these letters to churches during his time frame of imprisonment. And while Paul is in prison, he uses this phrase of, I, Paul, a prisoner of the gospel. Now remember this, Paul wasn't in prison for his brak. <laughs> they didn't catch Paul, Tracker didn't find him, and he was here, driver's seat, you know, with his things under the seat, and no, 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 no. You know, Paul was arrested for preaching the gospel. Now if you are familiar with church history, and uh, in the next two months, as we make our way towards Reformation Month, we're going to be covering a lot of history as to how the Bible got compiled, from when it was written and how does it apply to us today and throughout history what are some of the changes that we've seen to the christian faith that has caused what we know today as denominations okay how does these denominations come about and when we do reformation month uh, we're going to spend some time some some time in that but we need to understand from the time of the ascension of uh, of of christ and the coming of the holy spirit at the time of pentecost it was not fashionable to be a christian you were murdered for your faith. And I always tell people this. You need to understand why and what is it about the Christian faith that is so offensive towards people that people would kill Christians. You must remember this. The biggest martyrdom that we've had on earth is the martyrdom of the Christians. Nobody has been murdered for the sake of a belief globally than as big as it has been with the Christians. So the martyrdom of the Christians has been there from the time of Christ. That's when it started. In actual fact, before the time of Christ, from the beheading of John the Baptist. So from that time, there was already a persecution against the Christian faith. 
And Paul, who was formerly a murderer of the Christians. So remember that about Paul the Apostle. He wasn't always Paul the Apostle. He was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus is the one that persecuted the Christians and kills the Christians. Until he meets Jesus. And the beautiful testimony of Paul the Apostle is, God can turn a murderer into a minister. Because that's what God does through Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle is formerly a murderer. God turns a murderer into a minister. So, so, so Paul is on his way on the journey to Damascus. He's, he's, he's on his horse. And, and, and Christ blinds him from him seeing um, um, uh, who he is. And uh, he engages with him and, and Paul gets saved. And when Paul steps onto the scene, you can imagine this. Paul was the one who was killing the Christians. Now comes and he's the one that needs to be an apostle to the, 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 uh, the Gentiles and also a leader of some of the Jewish leaders. So, so God uses the person that was bringing persecution in order to turn that around. But then remember this, he himself gets persecuted. Now I always say this if you look at the disciples and you look at how they were murdered. There's no reason whatsoever if the Bible or Christ wasn't true for any of them to give up their lives just like that. I mean, if your back is against the wall for something you've done and you know what you were saying was a joke, you would have said, okay, look, uh, you know, you, you don't have to take it that far. I was only joking with you. You know, hocus pocus, here's his body, we got it. You know, he didn't really raise from the dead. Yeah, we can find him. Uh, but that is not what happened with the disciples. The disciples were murdered for their faith. We're talking about intellectual men that were willingly giving up their lives. When you go and you read the Gospel of Luke, we need to understand about Luke. Luke is a physician. So he's a doctor. That's an intellectual man. That is a man that has taken all of the accounts and studied it carefully, cover to cover, and then compiled his account. And he writes two volumes. Volume 1, Luke. Volume 2, the book of Acts. Acts of the Apostles. So we have intellectual men that were willing to lay down their lives to change their lives. And not only do we have intellectual men, but we have ordinary men. Remember Peter and John in the book of Acts. When they are busy preaching, the people say this is ordinary, uneducated men. But they say, we have seen that they must have been with Jesus because they spoke with authority. So not only does it change the cause of those who are intellectual, but it even changes the cause of those who are non-intellectual. The power of Christ has the ability to touch and change a life. And these are men that were willing to lay down their lives for the faith. Well, Paul, he doesn't give his normal title because he's not appealing to the church now as an apostle. He's appealing to a brother as a brother. He reminds this brother of his, his current location. Now, it's still, I, I, I'm still confused a bit when it comes to how Paul wrote these letters, and I'll explain to you why. The way the Roman guard set up was, you'd be chained to a guard on the one side, and you'd be chained to a guard on the other side. But one thing in the book of Philippians we do know is, Paul was preaching the gospel to the guards, and the guards, as they were coming in for their shifts, were getting saved. Which means, the entire guard system that was persecuting the Christians, all got saved. Because from group to group to group to group, Paul was preaching salvation to them. Now, here's the thing. I don't know how and where did Paul get a pen and a paper because he was tied up. But the one thing that I do know is this. 
if God wants to get his message across to people, he will preserve his message in spite of the cost. Let me give you an example. They put Paul in prison to get him to stop preaching the gospel. Some of the most important letters we have in the New Testament, those four, are written by Paul while he's in prison. So God faithfully had communicated even during the time of challenges in Paul's life. Paul, in prison, him being a prisoner. Now you must remember Paul's imprisonment was twofold. Number one, it was physical because he was in jail. It You know, for preaching the gospel. You know, he went to prison for preaching the gospel. Now Paul being in prison is his physical state. But also, Paul says that he was a prisoner of the gospel. Now remember this, if you are a prisoner, how the normal custom of your day-to-day -day living gets taken away from you, you get given the way that you need to live for a period of time. Much like the guys in the center. You know, you get taken away your freedom for a period of time. Um, and I shouldn't even use the term freedom because I always say to people, you are more free here than what you were when you were using. When you were using, then you were a prisoner. When you are here and you are free from the usage, then you are truly free. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I thought they were going to give me a hoo-ah, fufu, zela, or Next, I'll preach this side. I'm not preaching to the guys anymore. So, 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 hello somebody. So, so, Paul is a prisoner in a physical state because he's in prison, but also he has no option or no ability but to give his life to the cause of ministry. Because when Christ, remember this, uh, when Paul writes in Philippians and he says, I make it my every effort to reach forward to my goal. Yes, I press on to the mark of the higher calling. We use that as a, as a normal, I'm pressing on. You know, how's things, brother? I'm pressing on. But what Paul meant, I mean, Paul saying I'm pressing on while he's in prison, which means even though they put me in jail to stop me from preaching, I'm still going to preach. I'm pressing on to the mark of the higher calling. So, so remember this. While Paul was in prison, the people that put him in prison is getting saved. So he's pressing on to the mark of the higher calling. There is no way even putting Paul in a physical prison that you can take away the fact that his real imprisonment is that Christ Jesus has taken hold of his life. And that's what he says, I make it my every effort to take a hold of my goal because why? Christ has taken a hold of me. So when Christ takes a hold of you, you are able to take a hold of the future that he has for you. You have to become a prisoner of Christ in order for you to live a God-fulfilling life. Well, Paul's intro. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then uh, Paul's, Paul's Gatea, you know, uh, his, his second in command, his second in charge, uh, Timothy, our brother. Okay, not Fizzle. Okay, just in case you were wondering here, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Then he, he, he tells us to who this letter is addressed to. He says, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. So now, we don't know that much of Philemon, other than in this letter and once or twice mentioned uh, elsewhere in the Bible. But we know this about Philemon. Philemon is a co-worker, which means he's somebody that works with Paul, alongside Paul, in the faith and for the sake of the ministry. So this is a person that is saved, and this is a person that has a call of ministry upon their life. To Philemon, our dear brother and co-worker, and then he says here, verse 2, to Ephia, or Ephia, 
I think the, the more accurate is Ephia. And when I, when, I, when I read over that, I know it might sound like I'm saying Anthea. You know, it says here, to, to, to Ephia, our sister. Not Anthea, my sister. Okay? Ephia, Ephia apparently was, was his, his, his wife. So this is a husband who was overseeing a church alongside serving in the ministry with his wife. And they had this responsibility. Listen to this. To our sister, to uh, Archippus, our fellow soldier. And remember, there's, there's a difference. If I say to someone, you're a co-worker. And I say to someone else, you're a fellow soldier. There's a difference. The one is just a worker. The other one is fighting for the faith. You must remember, that's what the soldier does. A soldier fights in battle. And they're soldiers of the cross. There's soldiers in the faith. There's co-workers. But then you get soldiers. So, uh, verse 2 again, to Ephia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and then he says, and to the church that meets in your home. So here's this family setting, and it's this family that, that, that has this church in their home. Now, I'm a fan of, of home churches. And I always say this to people, mega church is not the motive or the intent of the word of God. Now, what I'm not saying is that a mega church is not from God. But what I am saying is this. Oftentimes when you get to mega churches, mega churches has nothing to do with the intimacy of the people. But has everything to do with what this big corporate body is doing. And oftentimes, especially in our local context of church, we do not see the mega churches fulfilling the mandate of the gospel. And what we mean by that is, we don't see these big masses of churches actually fulfilling the mandate of the gospel. But remember how churches started up and people will say, you know, remember, Pastor, Jesus had a congregation of 5,000. Now, if you're saying that to me, clearly you've never read the Bible. Because that 5,000 people that Jesus had, and remember, that's, that's only counting the men. That's not even counting the women and the children. Now, I mean, if we have to take all the women and all the children and ask you to leave, this number will become very small very quickly. Which means it's most likely that it was over 10,000, Jesus' first congregation. And remember this, after Jesus broke bread, multiplied bread, multiplied fish, and fed them, the next day Jesus wasn't feeding them anymore. So that's not a verse we use to speak about the provision of God in your life. Because that verse isn't about provision of God in your life. Now, the next day, Jesus stops feeding them. Jesus doesn't give them provision anymore. When, after they ate their food, they wanted to make Jesus king. The next day, when they realized Jesus isn't going to feed them anymore, they started doubting Jesus. And they said, oh, man, this boy we know, it's a, that's a carpenter. It's a Joseph's son. Huh? And it's like a, they, they, they got something from Christ. And remember, it, it speaks about the motive of our heart. Of our heart. Do we, does God only become God to us when we get what we want? God bless the Lord, oh my soul. You know, God is doing something for you. But when things are falling apart, will you still follow Him? And what happens is, that 5,000 people live with their women and children. And it's Jesus alone with the 12. And then He asks His disciples, and you, shall you not also depart? And Peter says, yeah, where are we going to go? You are the one that has the words of life. So, so remember, I always say this, Jesus tests discipleship with doctrine. He tests, Jesus makes the masses into a small group, into a small crowd. In the book of Acts, we do see something different when the 
Holy Spirit comes and the multitudes are getting saved. But remember that multitudes that get saved, they become small churches. Because it's impossible for that 5,000 people that, okay, that was saved, you get the first 4,000 and then you get the next 5,000 in the book of Acts. It's impossible for those people in, for, for, for 5,000 people to all meet in one home. Because the Bible says that they committed themselves to the teachings of the apostle, the fellowship and the breaking the bread. They met in each other's homes each and every day to preach and teach. So I mean, how are you going to put 5,000 people in one house? So, and that's, that's after that, the formal setting of church begun. But this is one of those small, intimate home churches. Here we have a leader. We have his relatives. And, and, and here we see Paul, while in prison, writing to them a letter. So now, we kind of have the audience. Uh, we're going to see in a moment the intent of why Paul writes the letter. And we have a little bit more about the author. We know who he is. Now we understand Paul. Okay, um, we know the setting of the church, and then he gives his, his normal uh, closing of his intro. Verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, remember what grace is grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. And oftentimes, we like to define grace um, by our own terms. And remember, grace is this it's salvation. You, by no means whatsoever, can make right with God. You need a mediator because by no means possible can God give you redemption or reconciliation by your terms. Remember, if somebody, if, 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 if Justin comes and he steals uh, my Corolla and he comes to me and he comes to me with a Uno and he says, you know, sorry for what I've done. Uh, here's a Uno. I'm like, my friend, there's a difference between 1.6 and 1.1. I'm going to go nowhere slowly very slow not very fast very slow the terms of reconciliation in order for you to make amendment with your creator for your sin demands your death so you by no means whatsoever can come and make right with god by your own means there's nothing that you have that god can accept in order to forgive you for your sins that's why he has to send his son that's grace so when paul says grace to you that's what paul means grace God giving you something that you don't deserve on the basis of his election. Grace to you. And then he says, and peace. Okay? Remember, peace is a result of grace. If, 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 if Justin steals my car and me and him make an amendment, we have peace with each other. So now that I have grace, what's the result of that grace? I have peace with Justin. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that that's what God gives us grace. He makes peace with us and it comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he gets into the crux of the letter and I want us to unpack. Verse 4. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayer. Now I want to say this. Paul is by a stoat. And we're going to see in a moment because Paul is, Paul is, Paul is using. He's, he's being diplomatic. He's going skimp. He's, he's, he's being almost persuasive in what he's going to do. He's, it's like Paul the Apostle is being conniving and cunning in these verses. I want you to see it. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers. So as he begins to speak about the church and what he wants them to do, Paul is kind of buttering them up. 
He, he wants them to, to feel okay and, and at ease and at peace with him. When I, when I pray about you, I always thank God. You know, it's like, it's like when somebody is about to make a request and they want something, they first tell you 15 nice things. Then they ask you, oh yeah, you know, by the way, I wanted to just ask, isn't there 15, eh? You know, for a haircut or something. You know, I don't know. Isn't there 50 out? You know, yeah, you know, I, yes, yes, my man, I don't want slutty on. You know, you, you, you first gonna cause other person, you know, you're gonna butter them up. And after they, they hyped up, you're like, listen, man, uh, don't you want to quickly take Jesse to the shop there for bread? You know, I first butter, ah, wow. You know, if you, if you come to work, ah, wago, wago. This is exactly what Paul the Apostle is doing. And as we unpack, you're going to see it in a moment. Listen to this. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love for all the saints. Here, listen. As we unpack, you're going to see Paul is naughty. Paul is naughty. He's saying, I'm always thanking God in my prayers when I hear about you. And then he says, because I heard about your love for people. But in a moment, as Paul is about to unpack, he's going to actually make a request on the behalf of someone that they don't love. Hey, Paul is stoked. He's naughty, blind, very bad. Okay? I always thank my God. When I mention you in my prayers, because I heard of your love for all the saints and the faith. Now remember, uh, in certain contexts where it uses the term the faith, it's not speaking about the concept that we use in order to believe in God, our faith. Okay? It's speaking about the belief system that we are already in the faith. So if I say to you, fight for the faith, I'm saying you as a Christian, fight for your beliefs, not just the concept of faith, the faith. So they have love for God's people and they have love for the faith. Now remember this, it will be very hard for you to love something that you don't believe in. And, and I always say to people, that's why I can tell who has passion towards the faith on the basis of your conduct. Your, your, your belief system and your walk will be hand in hand. Your, your faith will align your conduct. That's why when Paul normally writes in, in, in his epistles, he writes uh, the first half of his epistles, he teaches on doctrine. And the next half of his epistles, he teaches on practice. Before Paul teaches husbands how to love their wives, he first teaches them about how God loves the church. Before, before he teaches about submission, he first preaches on how Christ submits to the Father. So, so remember this, theology and practice is bound together. You can't teach practice without teaching on theology. Theology always comes first. Doctrine and then practice. Orthodoxy and then orthopraxy. And when you go to Paul's letters, Ephesians, he writes three chapters of theology. Then he writes three chapters of practice. So before you can put on the armor of God and get into this battle, you need to understand the concepts of what that peace is, what that truth is, what that righteousness is. And for three chapters, he writes on that. So remember this, your contending for the faith will always be seen in your conduct. Don't come tell me you saved because you came here and you sat in a chair every Sunday. Last time, yeah, every Sunday. I'm also here every Sunday. I want to see you with your family. I want to see how you treat your family. I want to see you in your working environment. 
I want to see how you honor God when, when we are not here now. Not in a building, in a tent. When we're not here in this tabernacle of the Lord. Or the tent of the Lord. When we're not here in this tent of the Lord, I want to see your conduct. I want to put a camera in your car. I want to I wanna, I wanna listen to what you listen to all week. I want to hear what you say the whole week. I want to see if God is there in your conduct. So remember this. If I go and I sit in the garage, I do not become a motor vehicle. If I go and I sit inside McDonald's, I do not become a Big Mac or McFeast Deluxe. Hmm? I know some of you think pastor look like a McFeast Deluxe, but I mean, hello, somebody. You know? So, so, so coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. You have to see it in your love for the faith. You have to see it in your love for the saints. We have to see it in your conduct. So Paul is being diplomatic because he's, he's buttering them up. He's like, you, I heard about you. About how you love the people. How you love the faith. And Paul is about to make his request. Soon and very soon. Listen to this, verse 5. Because I heard of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. Now remember, for us, our faith is in what? In Christ Jesus. Okay? Uh, next verse, verse 6. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective. Paul, it's naughty. Now he's like, and I'm praying that, that we can actually see that what I heard about you is true or not. And what I'm about to ask you. So Paul is about to test the genuineness of these believers by making a request. Let's, let, let's get into it. He says, uh, verse 6, I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of, of Christ. Verse 7, for I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So he's saying, yeah, listen, the people out there, when they're in your presence, they feel refreshed. He's like, yo, I've heard about you. The people are speaking about you. Word has come back to me. Verse 8. For this reason. So remember, if you're reading the word for this reason, you must remember everything he said before. He's bringing it into what he's about to say next. For this reason. For what reason? For the reason that I've heard about how well you are and how much you love the people and the faith. Your commitment to the faith. Because of your commitment to the faith, for this reason, he says, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right. So he says, for this reason, and then Paul starts slowly laying it out. Well, here's number one. Paul, as an apostle, has the authority to command them as the church to do what he wants. And obviously that is in the basis of sola scriptura, according to the word of God alone. And, and Paul, being an, uh, an apostle, is not going to go outside of the conduct of the church in order to ask them to do anything. He's going to stay within the conduct of the church to ask them to do something. So remember this. It doesn't mean like tomorrow, if uh, now I'm, I, I, I'm the pastor, and I say to you, you know, I'm the pastor. Let's look at it, Paul. Sally. Joe. I'm the pastor. And what I say goes. What I say goes only if it's in the context of the word. So, so if I'm going to command you to do anything, 
is going to be a command that I get from the Bible because I'm a preacher of the word. So I can't teach you something outside of the word. We call it presuppositions. I can't take an outside thought and put it into the Bible and make you do something. So Paul has this authority. And as an apostle, remember this, he's not appealing in the context of the letter to, the, to, to, to Philemon. He's not appealing to them in the context of him being an apostle. He's appealing to them as a brother in the faith. And we're going to see how he breaks this up. Listen to this. Verse 8, for this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right. So remember, the command also comes not for them to do whatever Paul would want, but from what is right. There's a right way and a wrong way. And Paul's command would come from the right way. Verse 9, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. So he says, here I can come to you with this command. But I'm not coming to you like it. But I'm coming to you with love. He says, I'm coming to you with love. He then says this, listen to this, verse 9. I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man. So you, you will almost think, hey, you know, Paul saying, I'm not going to use like this authority that I have to command you. I'm coming to you with love. But now it's almost as if he's battering them up again. Hey, you know, me, elderly man. So it's like, it's like me saying, you know, I'm not using my authority to tell you. But you know, me as the, as the leader in the church. It's almost as if there's some sort of a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction. Because Paul is about to make his request known. And he wants them to know. He can make the demand if he wants. But he wants to see their willingness. It's like the guys in the program. I always tell them, sometimes we can, we can be beyond stern. And I always tell the guys, if we have to be beyond, beyond, beyond stern, not one of the guys would be able to ever survive. But sometimes you have to see the genuineness that they want. For an example, so when Paul now engages with them, he wants them to see he has the ability to be beyond stern, but he wants to see the genuineness. Let's see it and let's see how it plays out. He says, I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son, Onimaeus. So now Paul saying, okay, I'm coming to you, but I'm coming to you for my son. Now, in this context here, it is not that Onimaeus is Paul the Apostle's son. No. Onimaeus is a son in the faith. For an example, uh, Sister Jasmine. Sister Jasmine is... A, a, a daughter to me in the faith. She's a partner to me in the faith. Brother Warren, I always tell Brother Warren, he's my father. You know, my father will come from some now. What did you say? Who's your father? I'm your father. And I always tell Warren, he's like, he's like the daddy I didn't have. You know, he's like, he's like my old topi. But in the faith, I'm the topi. I'm the father in the faith. So remember when Paul is appealing and, and we mustn't use this out of context. Out of context, what people normally do is you have this spiritual father, spiritual son relationship. Hey, Papa, you know, carrying his Bible. That's not who Onamaeus is. He's not, he's not the armor bearer. He's like a child to Paul the Apostle in terms of the fact that Paul is in the faith first and he's teaching them that are following him. Okay, so... He's going to make an appeal to Philemon. The appeal is going to be for the spiritual son. And the spiritual son, son is called Onimaeus. He says, 
I became his father while in chains. Now, what does that tell us about Onomaeus? Hey, man. He's in prison. So, while in prison, while Paul is teaching and preaching, he develops a relationship with somebody. This person gets saved, and this person becomes like his son to Paul the Apostle while he's in prison. Okay? So, Paul is evangelizing 101. Paul is, is, is making disciples in the ministry. Paul has, 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 has somebody that is in the prison, that is about to be released, that has become like a child to him. He says, I became his father while I was in chains. Verse 11, once he was useless to you. Now, what does that automatically tell us about Onomaeus? Onomaeus and, and Philemon have a relationship. And in actual fact, Onomaeus is in prison because Philemon put him in prison. So the very same person that Philemon sends to jail meets Paul the Apostle, gets saved, and now Paul wants to send that same person back to the person that put him in jail. How oh, man. Listen, when I, when I read the Bible, it encourages me. I'm not going to lie. But when I read the Bible, the Bible also convicts me. I'm not going to lie. The very same person that you have a grievance with is the very same person that God wants to send right back into your life. Pizza? Hello, somebody. Well, let's see what Paul going to do. And remember, he was battering them up. And I'm, I can, I wish I could see the look on, on, on Philemon's face when he was reading this. You know, Paul, I heard about your love for all the saints of faith. He's probably telling your people ever at, at a church in home, yeah, Paul, Paul, Paul wrote me a letter. And as he's reading through the letter, he's checking, I, on the he says, I'm no Paul. And now, he's so close to Paul that Paul calls him his son. The same person that you rely on for leadership this is the same person that has now discipled the person that you sent away from your presence. And I always say this to people, you know, when you see these, um, let's say something happens in the community and we demand justice for this person, justice for so-and-so, justice for so-and-so. Okay. We're always looking for justice, demanding that the person that has committed the crime does the time. Yet what if it's God's intent to forgive the one that has committed the crime? You see, it's easy for us to speak about us being saved, born again, believers, believers in the faith, contending for the faith. But remember this, it becomes so difficult where we need to test your discipleship with doctrine. Does, does what you believe about the Christian faith match the conduct that God demands in His Word? Now again, I'm not, I'm not saying that there isn't formats of of, of what do you do in a certain context? What do you do in a certain context? Those, those things has to be there. Those policies has to be there. And you see it in the church. If you want to know about that, go and read the letter to the church at Corinth. Go and, go and read even what Paul says to, 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 to Timothy in Timothy chapter 1. Paul speaks about those who are his partners in the faith that he has excommunicated. He says, I've handed them over to Satan. So I know in certain contexts there is the handing the person over to Satan. But we're not speaking about the person that is unrepented. 
We're speaking about the person you have a grievance with. That is a child of God. That's the difference. The difference isn't somebody being handed over to Satan. That's somebody that was never Bakir. That's somebody that was acting to be a Christian. We're speaking about the brother or the sister in faith that you want to excommunicate because of what they've done to you. One chapter, Paul. So much. We didn't even, we didn't even get halfway. So much. And I mean, I can imagine Philemon by now. Philemon is like, whoa, 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 whoa. On the mayors. On the mayors. But you know, I'm sure, like us, he would like things. You know, somebody sends you an email, you read through it, you're like, whoa! Close the email. But you wonder, I wonder what else did they say? You know? And you wonder, Lucy. And they know you got it. You know, if it was a WhatsApp, two ticks. We know you got it. You know, when it went blue, we know you saw it. He don't now, when you go into it and you want to see further, and it unpacks more. Philemon unpacks more. He doesn't stop there. Listen to this. Verse 11. Once he was useless to you, but now he's useful both to you and to me. Let's rewind. Paul says, I can command you to But I'm not doing I've heard about your love. I want to taste it. I've heard about about oh sorry. I've heard about your love for the saints. Amplified. Plus I'm recording. It's too late, eh? Let's continue. Let's read on. I've heard about your love. Your your love for the saints. Your love for the faith. And while I'm writing to you, I have I have Onomaeus with me. It's my son now. My son in the faith. And now, guess what? He was useless to you. But now he benefits me. And he's going to benefit you. So the same person that was once useless to them is now going to benefit. Listen to this. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. Verse 12. I'm sending him back to you. Oh, at this time, on the mayor's must have said, whoa, whoa, whoa. How do you mean now? You're sending him back. Now, now, most likely, in order for Onomaeus to be sent to prison from Philemon, he must have done something. And I, I, I've done some research on this, I, I think a year ago, on, on, on the nature of Onomaeus. It was said that Onomaeus was a servant in Philemon's home, which means he worked, he was employed by him, which he could have either been a slave or he could have been somebody that worked either in a home or in the yard or whatever the case may be. But he had stolen and he was charged and he was sent away. So instead of them assisting or helping in the situation to find out what has this person done. And remember, this is a person that has now repented. This isn't a person. There's a difference between a person that repents and comes back to the faith and a person that wanders off. You have to be able to test the person as well to see if the person is in the faith or not. Okay. Um, in, in, in verse 12, he says, I'm sending him back to you. Now listen to Paul's description of Onomaeus. He says, I'm sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. Look, Paul and, 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 and Onomaeus, they were catching up like And they became so close that he became a son in the faith. And Paul describes him as my very own heart. 
You know, it's like, it's like let's say maybe another ministry starts and uh, we need to, 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 to manage the ministry, you know? And I, and I, say, I say to them, you know what? I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you Sister Jasmine. I'm going to send you my very own heart. I'm going to send you a person that is close to me, that is able to do exactly what I'm able to do. I'm going to send her. I'm going to send you my heart. So this person becomes a, a partner in the faith with Paul. And Paul now wants to send him back. So the difference between starting a church and sending someone to manage it is the fact that this is the person that these people have put in prison. His time is up. He needs to be released. And Paul is organizing a home for him. And Paul is like, no, you're going to go back there. I know them. Come and write them a letter. And remember, Paul, um, in, verse, in verse 8, for this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you, Paul, Paul has the authority to command them to take him back. But he's not commanding them anything. He's not writing to them as Apostle Paul. He's writing to them as Brother Paul. And as a brother appealing to another brother, he's making his request. Verse 13, I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. He's saying, he's of such good service to me. He can even replace you. <laughs> he's of such good service to me, he can even replace you. Listen to this. Um, verse 13, I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. So why did he say, I can command you to do anything? And what does he say later? But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. He says this, so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but out of your own free will. Now, there's that term, and I want to unpack it briefly, of free will. Now, we need to understand, free will in the Bible doesn't exist. And you'll say, but pastor, you just read it. Yeah, that's a word that has been used in English translations to make sense of a request that is being made. So remember this, not one of us have a free will. And if you say you have a free will, I want you to stand up right now and levitate and just fly into the sky. Come on, I'll wait. I don't mind waiting. You, you can't. Because you don't have a free will. And you'll say, yeah, but the law of gravity. Exactly. There is things that governs your ability to make certain choices. Again, you can only make choices on the basis of your nature. Now, what does that mean? Remember this. A dog is going to be a dog. The cat is going to be a cat. I met other animals last night in the... <laughs> voodoo voodoo stuff. I'll tell you about it later. No, this is not the time or the place. Okay? I don't know was it the Sangoma stuff. I even sent other friend of mine like hey brother, voodoo voodoo stuff. Straight. You know? I was like, how do you mean voodoo voodoo? I was like I if I reply to this guy he's gonna laugh at me. Like you are right now, so I'm not even gonna tell you. So 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 um the, those those things will be what they are. An animal will be what they are. Remember this. The dog has no ability to climb in my car and start driving my car. Because he's a dog. And you in your human nature, you have only the ability to do, according to your human nature, what human nature allows you to do. So you do not have free will. But you do have a will on the basis of your nature. And it's not free. You can't do as you please. 
You can't fly. Remember, there's morals that govern you. There's morals that govern you. That's why the atheist has no basis to make moralistic claims whatsoever. They will always speak out of the nature of being made in the image of God. Let me explain to you. An atheist says, you come from nothing. You come from stardust. And you say, okay, well then, if I come from stardust, I can take your child and murder your child. And you'll say, no, you can't murder my child. Why not? Because it's my child and murder is wrong. But who tells you that murder is wrong? There has to be a moral law that governs you. And the atheist, if the atheist says, no, that's wrong, says, who tells you that it's wrong? Because God in his word and in his law says, thou shalt not commit murder. That lawgiver is God. There's always a transcendent value of which gives us our values in which we need to determine things by. So when Paul says free will, he's not saying that he has the ability to will freely. He says that according to the choices I have given you, it's two choices that they have. Number one, they can accept him. Or number two, they can reject him. It's only the two choices that they have. Well, look at this. Uh, verse 14. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that you so that your good deeds might be out of will not be out of obligation but out of your own free will so he doesn't want to command what they do but he's giving them the option and he's saying okay what you're going to do with the option verse 15 for perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently now now what does it mean to get the person back permanently this person is a part of the faith I mean, how are you going to avoid someone on earth? Then you're going to go to heaven and they live next door. Come on, Nana. What is this now? Huh? Are you okay? You're going to get to heaven. I mean, you're going to wake up in the morning, open your curtain, you know, see Cupid flying by. Hi. And he's a man. Marie, Alice is too here. Jesus, like us, we are confident. I'm not coming out. Hmm? No, my friend. And remember, I take you back to the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to unpack it more in the weeks to come. I take you back to the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us. And I want you in your mind to think about somebody that you have something against. I want you, if there's that one person... That make her hair stand up now. <laughs> they walk in here now. Hey, yeah. All her hairs is standing. I don't even have beard, but it will grow now. They walk in. They sit next to you. Now, now, remember this. When a person is a part of the faith, they are your family in the faith. Permanently. And Paul says, listen. Maybe he was separated from you for a while. But now, he's going to be with you permanently. Well, verse 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. As a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me. But how much more to you? I, Paul. Hey, Paul. I mean, Paul. It's like he, if, if I was on the money, I would say, this guy have a nerve, man. Oh, Paul. Except I'm some of my status. Huh? How much more to you? Listen, 
both in flesh, which means he has a physical contribution to them as the church, but also in the Lord. Verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, now Paul throws his, his, his relationship with them. And listen to this. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. Paul is saying, if we are together, you will accept him like you accept me. Now, I want us to keep in mind, whenever we are reading the Bible, it's easy for us to make a direct application. It's easy for us to look at these verses and apply it straight to us and think about it. But one thing we have to remind ourselves every time we're opening up the canon of Scripture is this. Something, somewhere, somehow, in what we are reading is pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ. Now you must remember this. The type of forgiveness that Paul is displaying, it actually speaks more so of the type of forgiveness that we need. Now remember something. It is impossible for you to give something that you don't have. If you don't have the love of God that resides in you, what do you have in order for you to give to the next person? And that's why I always tell people, you know, if I have an opportunity of doing premarital with, 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 with a couple, I'll ask them, are you saved? You know, I like what, I like what uh, uh, Vudi, not, not Vudi Bak and Paul Washer says, uh, they were doing a marriage conference and he was preaching about Christ. And a guy came up to him after and he said, you know, I love everything that you said, but I just feel that you didn't talk about marriage. He says, yeah, but before we can talk about marriage, we have to talk about these things. Because without this as a foundation, the marriage can't stand. You see, it's the gospel message of reconciliation. The God that wants to reconcile us to himself in spite of the fact of what we have done wrong. God wants us back in his household permanently. And he's willing to do it to such an extent that he'll give his one and only son to die for us on the cross. You see, Paul has a complete understanding of the gospel message. And with his complete understanding of the gospel message, the gospel ought to touch and change our hearts. But remember this, it's impossible for you to give somebody something you don't have. You can't give somebody love if you have not love. You can't forgive somebody if you have not forgiveness. When we understand just how much God has forgiven us, we are in a position for us to be able to forgive. Now I want you to think of that person. Diamonds. Even the eyebrows are standing in. Think of that person. And ask yourself, are you able to look that person in the face and forgive? See that person and forgive. Here's the thing. Accept that person permanently. Don't go in application and think of the people that, that don't want to forgive you. And say, ah, you know, they don't want to forgive. They... Don't think of them. Think of yourself. And think of who you need to forgive. And in your heart, make mention of that person. And remember this. The thing when it comes to... So, so, so I'm skeptical, skeptical to use uh, this term. But I think it's relevant if we can unpack it. They say unforgiveness is the bait of Satan. Now what they mean by unforgiveness is the bait of Satan. Unforgiveness doesn't hurt the person. 
that you have an issue towards. That person's living their life. You don't want to upset. They checked in on Facebook. You know, you went to the mall and the car was in the parking and you're not going in. <laughs> you snoop yourself over a nice time because that car is outside. <laughs> Relax, man. You know how much cars is there by the mall? Go sleep and fly your kite, please. Listen. But this is what we do to ourselves. And remember, the person that you're holding unforgiveness to, they are okay. They forgot about you. They're living their life. They're living their life. But forgiveness is you by the strength and the power that God has given you when He has forgiven you, giving you the ability for you to forgive the next. You have to let go. You have to let go. I can imagine Onomaeus, uh, not Onomaeus, Philemon reading this letter is like, my, I'm sending you my own heart. You know, his wife might, might have had to do, you know, some, some open heart surgery after this letter. Like, hi, not to Oni. You know, Onomaeus, he's not baptized now, Oni. Now Oni. Not to Oni. You can't even Oni tell Steve, he has to You know? He come to church, John, fully gate. Yeah. Well, let's read on. Verse 17. Paul has a nerve. Listen to this. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. If you consider, listen to what Paul is saying. If they consider their relationship. So so let's be honest. Is Paul even giving them a choice? No, no. no he's saying if you value our relationship, you will take him back. I'm not going to demand or anything. You will take him back if you value my relationship with you. Listen to this. Verse 18. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. It's like that stuff that he stole. I will pay you now. Remember this. Paul has a complete understanding of the person and the works of Jesus Christ. You must remember when I read this, I think about what Jesus needed to do for us. The, the, the debt that we owe, God charged. God charged on the account of Christ. Christ was willing to take what we deserve upon himself so that we can have a relationship with God. Remember when Paul starts out and he says, grace to you and peace. That, that, that's that grace that he's speaking of now. He wants to see now, do they have that grace in them? Because it's the same message that we have to understand. God has wiped clean our slate before Him. And now, the challenge of the gospel is, are we able to walk in the same light and in the same manner? Verse 18 again. And if He has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, verse 19, write this in my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention, now if you, if you thought Paul had a nerve, watch him now. Eh? Not to mention that you owe me even your very self. He's like, and by the way, in case you forgot, you owe me your life. You belong to me. Paul! Eh? I wonder if you have any conviction whatsoever. But remember this. It's an inspired letter, which means the inspiration that gives Paul the ability to write these words comes through the work and the power of the Holy Ghost. It comes through the work and the power of the Holy Ghost. 
So Paul says, look, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. I'm writing you this in my own handwriting. And don't forget, you owe me. You owe me your life. I'm, I'm, I'm finished. I tap out. Phone my Tani, I'm going. But here's the thing. The more we feel as if this is far beyond we can ever apply, remember this. That's how much God has loved you. That he gave his son to die for you. And you're telling me you can't even sit in the same row as the person you have a qual with. Grow up. Christian, you need to grow up. As the church, we need to grow up. We need to put our Christian pants on. I'm saying a nice one. Listen to this. Verse 20. Yes, brothers, I may benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Like, I'll benefit from you. Renew it. Renew it. Make my account fresh. And you owe me your life. Make my account fresh. Verse 21. Since I have confidence of your obedience. Uh, and remember this. Paul knows them so well. And he's reminding him, I know you so well. Remember how he started out. I heard about how you love the people. And how you love the faith. Here, Paul. Paul is naughty. Verse 21. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul is like, I know you're going to go above and beyond. And this is the good measure. Press down, shaken together. Here you need to apply. Okay. Um, verse 22. Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. Edilela, nine nine. He's like, and, 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 but here's the thing that I like. Do you know what this teaches me of Paul? Paul was confident he would be released from prison. He knew prison's not the end. When he wrote to the Philippians, he, he said, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. My, de- my, ta- my departure is near. My time is near. He's like, I- I'm, already, I'm already being run out. But when he writes to them, he's like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to see you. While you at it, he's going to come home. Huh? You owe me your life. I heard about your love for the people. He's my son in the faith now. And now that he's my son, I give him to you. He's my heart. He's my heart. And while you're at it, make a room ready for me. <laughs> Paul. Hmm. I thought he wasn't going to command him to, to do anything. But Paul's... When they say, make your request known, I, Paul. Every, every, every box, it must be ticked. Verse 22. Meanwhile, you also, meanwhile also prepare a guest room for me. Since I hope that through your prayers, I will be restored to you. And then uh, he gives his final greetings. Epaphras, uh, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, uh, Atticus, Demas, and Luke, my co-worker. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and your spirit. Now remember this. The Bible is always going to challenge us in areas that we feel uncomfortable. And you must remember, that is sometimes where some of the biggest growth comes for you as a believer. is where you challenged in the areas that is most uncomfortable. But remember, that person in the back of your mind, you know, your, your onomaeus, you know, your, 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 your person that has wronged or that has hurt you. Now, in the context of this, it is safe to say this, that reconciliation isn't loving that person from a distance. You know, pastor, the Bible says we must love from a distance. Hey, Philemon, 
Now, what I'm not saying is that there isn't contexts elsewhere in the Bible where you can have a relationship with somebody from a distance. But remember this, it becomes impossible when that person is a part of the church. It becomes impossible when that person is a part of the body of Christ. You know, as family of the body of Christ, all going to one destination, we will be with each other permanently. So, the Bible challenges us in the area of forgiveness towards the people that have wronged us. Remember this, you might as well charge what the people have done to the account of the Lord. You might as well charge it. Now, remember this, the same forgiveness that we want from God, we must be able to give to others. And I want you to think about it. How many times in your conduct have you offended God? And I'm sure like, um, like we're going through this sermon, you're thinking in your mind, Aisha must now again be friendly, friendly with the world. It's not saying be friendly, friendly with the world. It's speaking about the people that become a part of God's household. You have to understand we have the same permanent destination. The Bible says, if two people do not agree upon the destination, how can they walk together? If I'm saying, so where to is this way, and you're saying it's that way, we can't, we can't catch an Uber together. You go your way, I go my way. So that's what the Bible says. If you can't agree upon a destination, how is two people going to walk together? And remember, once people become a part of the faith, we have to be able to understand, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I know, and, and God knows that it's difficult for you to forgive some people. But the journey starts somewhere. Ask the Lord for His help. Say, Lord, this one that you're asking is not easy. It's difficult. But you have to ask God for strength. Remember, if forgiveness, if forgiveness is dependent only on forgiveness, then Jesus died in vain. Jesus died because he knew it's difficult for you to forgive. And that's what makes it more easier. Remember this, when you see Christ on the cross, you don't have the right to see anybody else outside of Christ on the cross. Now what that means is, Christ takes the sin you deserve and nails it to that cross. So too you should see the sins of others being nailed to that cross. Now again, it becomes so complicated because then you think, okay, but then how do we call people to repentance? We're not talking about calling people to repentance now. We're talking about that feeling you have in your heart towards people who are part of God's household. And I want to challenge you with that today. And over the weeks to come, we're going we're gonna to unpack a little bit more um, on the topic and on the context of forgiveness and see how much more does this apply. In closing... Who's that person in your life? Who's your Onameus? Who's the person that, that you have, have cast out? Now here's the thing. If that person now is a part of the faith, you need to accept that person back. You have to accept. And remember, your dwelling place with this person is permanent. You can't, can't close your curtains when you're in heaven. You can't. You're going to have to live together. And here's the, here's the evidence you are going to heaven. Is that you are able to live with those people already on earth. I want us to think about that. And as we come before the table of the Lord, I'm reminded of what 
what, 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 what Paul teaches when he writes on communion. Paul teaches this. Okay, He says, let a man examine himself. Now remember, he's not saying examine your sin. In terms of you being unforgiven of your sin. But examine your need today. And remember, when we partake of communion elements, that, that, that blood is symbolic and indicative of the blood of Jesus that brings you your forgiveness. Examine yourself today. Do you have a sin area of your life where you are harboring unforgiveness towards people? And as you partake of communion, come ready and acceptant for God to refresh your memory just how much He has forgiven you of your sin. Let us stand together as we close and we sing the Apostles' Creed and partake of communion. A warm welcome to everybody. My name is Aston and welcome to my channel. I'll be uploading a lot of ministry content, some preaching, some Christian apologetics, substance abuse recovery material and some life coaching principles and strategies.